Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with Zach Bitter and Dr. Sean Baker. Sean is a strength and high-intensity athlete and coach, setting personal records into his 50s. Zach is an endurance coach and athlete who competes for the S, Fuels, and Ultra Footwear Extreme Endurance Teams. Together, Zach and Sean bring you a wide range of topics with guests from around the world. Topics include health, nutrition, physical fitness, and sports. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit paypal.me forward slash hpopod or patreon.com forward slash hpopodcast. If you wish to sponsor the show, please reach out to us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. The links to all of these can be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform or for the video versions of the show, head over to YouTube and search Human Performance Outliers Podcast. If you enjoy a show, please consider sharing with your friends and family on social media. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now, on to the next topic. It's actually funny, Lewis, because I've been kind of kicking myself that I didn't get connected with uh, S-Fuels a little sooner because you're over in the Auckland area. Are you Actually, are you down in Rotorua, if I'm well, not mistaken? I live in Auckland now, but okay. I'm from Rotorua, so Rotorua is my hometown. And um, I kind of think I know where you're leading with this, maybe, were you? You were over around to like Rotorua, Tongariro-ish, like just before I yeah was connected with S-Fuels as well, so it all kind of... Yeah. Yeah, we just missed each other, but it would have been so rad to show you around. Yeah, my, my wife and I honeymooned in the, on the North Island in what would have been the end of 2018. Yeah, the end of 2018, and then we went back out there this earlier this year, right before the COVID stuff came through. Actually, had we had any foresight into what was going to happen, we probably wouldn't have gone, but uh, we, yeah, we were over in Rotorua for uh, the Tarawera 102-kilometer race out that way, and I was, I was thinking about, cause I know Dan Plews, Dr. Dan Plews has been on the show a few episodes back and he's in Auckland, I think. And you're there. I'm just like, man, if I would have just been a little bit uh, ahead of my, a little bit ahead of this, I could have met both of you guys in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it would have been so good. Cause yeah, obviously that, that Tarawera 102k trail run is, yeah, Rotor was my hometown. So I know most of those trails really well. I think my sister was actually mm-hmm. the, the one of the bikers at it, one of like the lead bikers or, or something or whatnot. But so 
yeah, like super familiar with the race. It's such an epic event for the town and starting there by the geyser. And yeah, it's just it's an unbelievable event. So yeah, I'm like bummed I didn't get to catch up with you over there. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe you can tempt me into running at least 25Ks with you for, a, uh, for another event <laughs> sometime. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's there's great, great running out that way. We were fortunate the first time we went out, we did a pretty thorough exploring of the Northern Island. Then after, um, after the, after the, sec- the second time we went, we actually flew down to the South Island and we didn't quite get to see as much as we would have liked because there was some, there's some like landslide stuff and some of the real epic spots down on the, I, I believe it's like the Southwest corner of the South Island. Yeah. So we couldn't quite push into some of that, but we saw there's, you know, there's plenty of stuff out that way too. Like the Fox and friends, Joseph, Joseph glaciers, I think is the yeah, spot yeah. we found ourselves at. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, cool money. Yeah, first of all, I mean, I, I should probably introduce you. So our listeners uh, have an idea of who you are and stuff like that. And we can kind of get into the show, but I'm excited to, to have you on Lewis. I think this will be a fun one. You've got a pretty ex- interesting uh, background in sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, done uh, a few little things in my short time, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're a young guy, yeah. How old are you? Yeah, I um, I'm 22 actually. Yeah, I turned 22. Um, yeah, a couple months ago. So, yeah, super super young. Just getting started, but with a, a pretty cool resume to begin things. So that's that's neat. But yeah, if you want to just like let our audience know a little bit about you, like kind of what you do, what your, uh, your passions are in the sporting world. And then we can, we can dive into some, some cool topics, I think. Yeah. Sounds rad. So, um, yeah, I mean, love long walks on the beach at sunset. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> nah, nah. So I think, um, yeah, I guess put in like a bit of a sport context. I, yeah, I was just always, always kind of enjoyed sport at school and had a whole bunch of fun doing that and started mountain bike racing when I was around 11 years old and in, in New Zealand here. Um, and did that through to being about sort of like 15, 16-ish. At that time, I transitioned across into Xterra Triathlon, which is like the off-road triathlon. So, I mean, everything you, you know about normal triathlon, swim, bike, run, we just happened to swim generally in like rough water and then mountain bike instead of road riding and then a, a trail run instead of running on the road. So around about like two and a half hour races. Um, and so I started doing that, yeah, when I was around about like 15, 16 ish. Um, and I've done that, um, yeah, for, for a few years as an amateur and then did in 2018, I think 2018, I, um, I had a go at the, at the pros and yeah have been been doing that since haven't haven't done a whole lot in the last sort of year or so i i got a bit injured and then everything kind of just disappeared all of a sudden but um yeah once it's all all back up and running looks like we might be able to go racing um hopefully at the end of this year again so it'll be my my second year as a as a pro that's really cool i think uh you know it's always interesting i think when folks get into a sport at a young age, I think it's even a little more interesting when it's a sport like Xterra or triathlon, because I mean, essentially you're doing three different sports and you're finding a way to kind of navigate being good enough at any one of them so that when you combine them all together, you can compete. And, uh, when did you kind of know, like, okay, I kind of have a, a knack for this or how did you maybe even decide to start doing that stuff outside of the, the mountain biking introduction? 
Yeah, I, um, I I definitely didn't have a knack for it. I'd say that for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, honestly, so it was a bit of a funny story. My dad had always done just like the, the local Xterra in Rotorua, which is on the world tour. Like it's one of the bigger Xterras around the world. So I kind of always just grew up going out and watching that. And dad always did them at like a, um, you know, like a particip- participation level, you know, I always trained for it and got ready, but wasn't like a leash or anything, but just always really enjoyed doing it. But still naturally you kind of grow up and you watch like the really fast guys and you kind of dream of maybe doing that one day. And then, um, yeah, one year dad and I decided that we would kind of, you know, do it together, uh, the individual race. So we, um, yeah, I literally borrowed a surfing wetsuit off some, off some friends. And, um, yeah, we did like four open water swims before the event. And that's basically the, the extent of my swimming other than swimming lessons as a kid to sort of learn not to drown really mm-hmm. and um yeah we, we kind of gave it a crack and i was i was terrible at swimming i must i must have been somewhere near the back um in fact i definitely was but at that time i was still mountain bike racing so i managed to have a, a good bike and then i think i walked most of the run but fortunately there weren't too many people in the 15 to 19 year old age group and somehow managed to um to qualify to go over to the world champs which was in maui hawaii so just because it's in maui we kind of thought hey that'd be an awesome family holiday and we'll we'll go have a have a crack at it um you know and by this point in time i decided i should probably learn how to swim a little bit more and um jumped in with one of the local swim squads in rotorua and i was i was honestly terrible I, I got in there with the coach and i swam i think it was like two minutes for 100 meters was my pb which is you know, like you would think you could probably just grab quite a few people off the street who could just jump in and do that. So I definitely wasn't much of a swimmer at all. Um, but yeah, and I, and I honestly, I, I think I swam 30 minutes for the one and a half Ks in Maui. But again, had a good bike and, a, and actually a pretty good run there. I, I used to do a little bit of cross-country running growing up. So every now and then the run clicks and quite often, more often than not, it doesn't. But um, so yeah, I managed, managed to get third there in my first year at the World Champs. And I think I was the at the time was like the youngest competitor to have done it. Um, there's been people since who have been younger, um, but it was really cool being like the youngest person, you know, you get to go up on the stage at the, you know, the big sort of dinners and, um, and yeah, I got third. So just kind of from there thought like, I might as well have a, have a proper crack at it. So I kind of slowly phased out of mountain bike racing and slowly picked up some more swimming and, and running for, I guess two, two, three years that I continued as like a, as an age grouper and just kind of worked my way up through the ranks there until um, I won, I won a few overall age group races and would have done all right in, in the pros. So we kind of thought like, hey, I mean, why not have a crack with the pros? That's, that's kind of the dream. So yeah, that's, that's how that all sort of happened. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into kind of the different disciplines and how you kind of attack that sort of stuff during the during this interview. But uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about just like the mindset of becoming a professional at such a young age, because I just, you know, I, you made me kind of think about it, too, as as we were scheduling this was my wife and I, we listened to this. Uh, they, they have these like uh, ESPN 30 for 30 shows that I don't know if you've you guys get that stuff over in, in New Zealand, but they'll do these like mini documentaries about specific sports. And they did one on, uh, on gymnastics. And I was just like, when they're just telling the story, you get these like 14 year old girls who are like competing in front of the entire world 
at the Olympics and it's just like, I just try to think, I just put myself in their position. It's like, I can't even imagine what I would have done and some of the stupid stuff I probably would have said if I had been the world looking at me at age 14, 18 and that sort of stuff. And, and obviously the Olympics is one thing, but like, you know, going, going pro in any, I think at a young age when you're, you're just barely an adult is it has to be kind of a, a unique mindset. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about kind of what's going through your head during that? Is it something that you just kind of expected a little bit or is there like a little bit of ignorance is bliss type of a mindset with that? How do you kind of navigate, how do you kind of navigate that at such a young age? Yeah, I think it was actually a really interesting one to bring up because for myself, um, like firstly, I was, was very fortunate with the, the guidance as well that I received, you know, not necessarily, you know, that I realized it was, I, I didn't necessarily realize at the time that, um, you know, how well everyone was kind of helping you and guiding you. But I had a really good network of, of people around me from coaches with, um, you know, Professor Paul Lawson. So you might, might have heard of him as sort of like plus and props. So he's the prof part of yeah. the plus prof. Um, and he's, he's an amazing, amazing guy. So he helped me for, um, you know, well, I'm still will when racing starts up again. Amazing, amazing physiologist. But he, he gave me a lot of guidance that I think was particularly uh, really important through that sort of 16, 17, 18 years old period when I was starting to take sport seriously. Um, and during that period of time, I would spend, I would, you know, head over to the States for as long as I could get on my visa and, and I would get over there and, you know, come home one day before my visa expired sort of thing and, and go over and train and race. But again, always surrounded by, by really good people who, who were just a really grounding influence as well, I think, because quite often when you're young, um i think and particularly in like a social media day and age as well it's really hard to you know it's not the olympics it's not gymnastics you don't have hundreds of millions of eyes on you but the people that do have their eyes on you because it is a small world like stuff passes around really quickly so yeah like i i always, always had to try and make sure that you you know you kind of um uh, social media, I think, was, is probably the hardest part of it. Trying to have like a personal life and a a professional life at a young age as well. When you're sort of thinking to yourself, like, oh, whatever, I'm just a kid. And most of the time, people will be like, oh, you know, they're just a kid. Like, they're going to say, you know, some dumb stuff every now and then, or do some dumb thing. But you know, they're just a kid. Mixed with also like a little bit of pressure that you probably put on yourself, but also from you know, whether it's sponsors or family or friends, um, to not sort of make those mistakes that, um, that you, that normal kids would try and normally get away with as such. So yeah, I think also, um, I, I never really struggled with it too much. I think I just had a really good network of people around me. Um, and then went through the right steps. Like we, from being about 16, 17 years old, I would meditate multiple times a day, a couple times a day, really learn the importance of sleep. I think like as a young athlete, what really gets through is they just get really tired and grumpy and like, I mean, everyone gets grumpy when they're tired. Like I say all the time, particularly like swim squads because that, you know, these kids are, are training, you know, sometimes three to four hours a day, going to school during the day, you know, eating just whatever their parents are eating. There's no real like diet involved. There's no thought about like recovery or meditation. And so I think that's what sort of tripped up most young athletes. And for me, I was really fortunate um, and also really driven in the fact that I, 
Um, I followed a, you know, pretty strict low carb, high fat um, diet. And so that obviously helped with my recovery. I tried to sleep or, you know, at least nap once or twice during the day after sessions, Um, you know, meditated multiple times a day and just tried to kind of keep everything in perspective of being really fortunate to be able to do what you do. But, you know, also try to understand that, hey, you're a kid as well. And sometimes it's not always going to work out. So you just kind of have to take a step back and be like, you know, um, you know, can't put too much pressure on yourself. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point, too, because when I think back to when I was like in my later teen years and that that age range, you know, you're still growing a lot and you do need more sleep. And just for me, like I was training at such a low volume back then. I, mean, I was a super active kid, so I was running around and doing a lot of like non-structured activity. But uh, just the, you know, now, now looking back at that after kind of understanding just like a full training cycle and what that does to your body and how important, like you said, sleep and recovery actually is, you know, I, I, I think like it's, it's almost like this, uh, this double edged sword to a degree where you get into those points of training where you're putting in 20 plus hours a week of training. So that's taking out a big chunk of your week. And then on top of it, you got to sleep probably about an hour, maybe two hours a day more than you would if you were just like moderately active so it's like it's pulling from both ends. And then if, you, if you're young enough and you're still in school, you got that on top of it as well. And, and I know you don't just uh, check out after those two things either. So <laughs> you probably sometimes wish it was a 26-hour day or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. It's totally like that. You know, you're kind of like at some point in time, something has to give as well. You know, like there's only so much time that you have to um, have a social life, try to do a bit of work, do a bit of school do training sleep eat like at some point in time something has to give um and so yeah i kind of i think I, I was really fortunate with guidance um and also yeah i think like if there are other young athletes watch this or maybe like maybe you have like parents on here or watching this who have kids who, who might be interested in pursuing sport and i think it's it's definitely the balancing act of like hey like you know this kid obviously wants to take performance seriously so just understanding how to do that properly. Um, <clears throat> I think lots of particularly like this, the stuff that I see is lots of maybe parents or coaches or something try to not quash those kids like performance goals, but they kind of do. They go like, you know, oh, they're too young to be training that much or are oh, they too young to be on a diet or are oh, they too young to be doing this or, or that. Um, when really like if the kid has that internal motivation, like just to let them go with that, but try to facilitate it in the best way possible. So I was just really fortunate that, that everyone supported me really well with, with my goals. Um, yeah. Which, which made, made all the, all the difference, I think. Yeah. You know, that good environment is huge. I remember before I started focusing more on kind of training and racing as a profession, I was a teacher for about five years and, you know, so I'd see a lot of kids at the high school, middle school level, do a variety of different sports and, one of the kind of topics of interest kind of in the United States over the last couple decades uh, since I kind of competed at the high school and collegiate level has just been kind of the specificity that we've seen. I think like probably when I was still in elementary and middle school, there was still pretty big push for like kids just to do a variety of different sports and not necessarily focus on anything exclusively, at least until high school. Whereas now, I mean, you see it where, you know, you get, you know, kids like they're pretty young, like not even 10 years old and their parents are already kind of getting them into a specific sport and fine tuning that. And, uh, the, the little bit of lashback or like clapback, I guess on that here is just that 
at that age, maybe you want to be doing a variety of different things to kind of let your body develop in a more kind of holistic way, I guess, so that when you do find the sports you really love and enjoy, you kind of have like a little more of a well-rounded background. But I didn't even really necessarily think about this until now, but with your sport, you kind of almost have that by default, just with the three disciplines in there. You know, like even if you take it really seriously, you're still doing a, such a variety of different things. You're, you know, if you, if you're worried about the impact of running, you, know, you maybe spend a little more time on the mountain bike or swim and reduce the impact even more. And, or if you're just, you're, you're not really feeling a specific discipline for a while as a kid, you still have that flexibility. Like, well, you're probably going to want to do one of the three. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that is kind of interesting, but I do like what you said about too, just like kind of having a parents that are going to support what you want to do. Cause I think some, some kids just want to be doing something and you know, they're going to focus in on it. They're going to have that drive. I mean, my wife's like that. She, you know, when she gets her mindset on something, it's like, you know, she's going to do it and she's going to do it with uh, you know, 110% effort. So you just kind of got to get out of her way and let her, let her uh, attack whatever it is she's going to get after. And, you know, kids are like that too. Sometimes I think with, as a parent, it seems like if you can just kind of stand back and support what they need, but not necessarily like try to steer them too harshly, they, it's probably the direction to go if I had to guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it definitely doesn't also necessarily need to be parents as well. I think like um, the impacts that say like schools, um, you know, like schools and club coaches and friends have on on young athletes' mindset, <coughs> it probably has. <coughs> oh, sorry, man. You got a sore throat all of a sudden. <laughs> no worries. How <laughs> oh, good, man? I got three of these stacked up, bro. Oh, so if I get a sore throat now, I'm, 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 <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I think the mind. I think it's it's the the communal group of like. I think there's honestly more pressure that comes from say like friends and schools and clubs and you know that that probably makes more of a difference because to kids like your parents are your parents and like sometimes like you're not always going to agree, but you still love them because they're your parents. Whereas like you feel, and they're always going to love you and support you as much as they can, but you really feel the kind of different stuff that you maybe get from like other kids your age or like that you sort of feel like at school or in, in those other environments where you don't necessarily always have sort of like, support or that you can know that you always come home to, to that so I think that's the thing that lots of young athletes struggle with um and particularly yeah social media as well makes it makes it really hard for them um because it's there's like there's a real pressure nowadays to have like a normal life like it was always my thing growing up was that you would always people would give you a lot of shit for um for say like not going to parties or like not you know like your world is so different to like worrying about, you know, uh, like who's the hottest girl at school kind of thing. Like that's, that's not the world that you kind of live in. You love sport, but then so many other, so many, all the other kids don't really understand that. And I think that's probably more where the, the pressure comes from because you, you know, you're, you're naturally not spending much time in those sort of social circles. Like, you know, I think now all my friends are probably, from racing um you know i'd say like the youngest like friends that i have that i spend time with nowadays probably like late 20s man like it's just um maybe even like early mid 30s so it's just like it's completely different kind of mindset so i think just like as a young athlete just understanding that like it's not going to be the same as everyone else so don't try to like compare what you're doing to to your friends i know like I kind of see that a little bit of my younger sister as well. Like she's an exceptionally talented athlete 
And I think maybe also for a girl, it's a bit harder, but you know, like there's definitely those sort of like societal pressures that, um, that aren't necessarily conducive to athletic success, but it's kind of, that's the hard part to navigate. I think like the actual mindset of like performing in the sport, like if you're a driven kid and you've got like good support and you know what you want, then like you're going to figure out the mindset as you go, you know, like try to spend a bit of time being present and like learning, like developing maybe like some mindfulness and meditation, you know, try to be like, think about, I used to do this thing where I had this diary and I'd write down at the end of every day, three things that I did well and three things that I could improve. And then when I woke up, every morning I'd write like my three intents for the day and like though you can do little things like that that make a huge difference but like at the end of that it's just understanding that hey like you're young try to take all the pressure out of everything and just enjoy it and that'll you know that'll make the biggest difference more than anything yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and I think it's props to you I think like by the time I got around to to journaling in any capacity I was probably 10 years older than you are now so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's cool that you're able to pick up those skills because those are things I think that sometimes you kind of, you, you almost learn as you kind of grow or as you mature. So for yourself getting into the sport with that kind of structure early on, you probably just speed that, that you accelerate that process a little bit when you're kind of navigating that. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask around that too was when I think of just the way I kind of like evolved into a runner, a runner, I I had a lot of supports there that kind of got me to where I did that. I always wonder if that particular one wasn't there, who knows if I would have even been doing this, I might be doing something completely different today. And, and one of them was like my, my collegiate cross country and track experience. I was by no means a rock star, but I learned so much during that process. And I think it kind of closed the gap from being like a very young adult to still a young adult, but um, I learned enough during that to find out that I actually really did like running and that even if it was just going to be a hobby, I wanted to keep doing it. But did you, you turning pro at 18, you kind of, in, at least in a lot of the sports here in the U S you kind of skip a step a little bit where a lot of times here, you know, you do your, your, your high school competitions and things like that. And then you, if you're really good, you'll get a scholarship to compete at the collegiate level or university and then you know you're gonna spend probably four or five years doing bad and then you'll go pro if you're kind of at that next tier after that and you know by then you're 23 24 years old so like i think you've kind of got a little bit more of an opportunity to kind of find your way did uh is that an opportunity in extra at all is there like collegiate or university level programs that you could do or is it something that you kind of have to clubs and really kind of seek and kind of continue down that path it's, uh, it's very much an individual sport. You're not going to find any collegiate programs based around like exterior. You might, you obviously might for road triathlon or you might for cycling or swimming or running. Um, and that's kind of where most people come into the sport. I'd say that the biggest intake in the sport would be in that sort of late 20s, early 30s. Um, you know, maybe like mid 20s would be sort of when most of the professionals got into the sport but it would typically be coming from other backgrounds where they might've had those sort of like biggest support networks, um, whether that's sort of like collegiates or clubs. Um, yeah, Xterra is very like, it's very much an individual sport. And I think, um, so yeah, like for myself, obviously I probably did like the pro thing around 18, 19 from sort of being around like, yeah, when I was about 17 years, 18 years, kind of 19 years, like I would spend a few months overseas. And so, 
you're like you're very much like you're with friends but you're very much also on your own as well and all of the athletes are like that it doesn't matter what age and or ability they are you know like the the world champion travels on his own um and then maybe picks up a bike mechanic and his girlfriend at some of the races but not not all of them you know like it's still very much an individual thing it doesn't have like the big team culture and um everyone sort of finds their own way with sponsors and you know just kind of people to do things with whether it's sharing costs or transport so it's very much like an individual networks but that also gives you the cool ability to sort of like build your own support network that you know kind of happens just based on like there's a lot of good people out there who who want to help and then um i think also if you can just try to you know try to be a bit of a nice person because i think lots of athletes and young athletes as well kind of take themselves out of the perspective of just being a person and that they put a lot of pressure on their sport or um a lot of other things you can just be like hey i'm still a person like if i you know we're heading to this race and if i feel like having ice cream today i'm still gonna have the ice cream today and just kind of build like a fun network around you because it is so individual that you can't put like you've already got the pressure of being on your own you can't start building those other pressures on top of yourself that that maybe might exist in those sort of larger team cultures yeah no it's almost like especially when you're younger you almost have to just take yourself like 80 or 90 percent seriously and give yourself a little wiggle room to to still learn and still be a kid or be young and and i think that's kind of helps make it make it possible to eventually go go all in or 100 percent or something like that it's uh it's an interesting balance, I think. So um, I do want to jump into kind of some of the specific disciplines that you're doing. I, I, I gather that biking is your strength, right? Yeah. Well, it's my, it's my background. Um, yeah. Mountain biking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It definitely was my strength for a long time and like would be if I focused more time on it at the moment, it's the discipline that I focus like the least amount of time and effort onto because it is my more natural discipline. So I spend, you know, like way more of my time and energy trying to progress my running. But yeah, biking is the thing that comes naturally best to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of where I want, that's the angle I wanted to dive into a little bit there is when you're dealing with these three disciplines, I think almost every, although you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there's kind of a standard athlete that typically speaking, if you're a strong biker, you're going to be much more inclined to be on the top of a podium versus being a strong swimmer and having the bike be your weakness. But my, my thought would be like you kind of have this it becomes kind of a chess match at the competition level where if you know swimming's your weakness and someone that you're going to possibly finish within a few minutes of has mm -hmm. swimming as their strength you kind of have to just let them go a bit in the beginning and, and say okay I'm going to catch them on the bike or I'm going to catch them on the run and just kind of execute your own race versus trying to maybe run or bike or swim someone else's race how much strategy do you place into that where you're leaning on your strengths versus just trying to stay afloat on the weaknesses? Yeah, it's, um, it's actually really interesting. And I think it's also very much dependent on the other athletes that are there and the different courses. Um, so for myself, swimming was always my weakest point. So I've spent the most time doing that to the point where now it's probably one of my stronger, um, my stronger parts of the race. So you know so like but if i know that there's like exceptional swimmers there um you know or some guys who aren't such great swimmers it's quite a it's quite a weird way to approach a race especially starting a race for the swim where you're so like call it blissfully unaware but it's more of a panic unaware 
of where everyone is. You have absolutely no idea if there's guys in front of you. You have absolutely no idea who it is. Sometimes you maybe do. You have no idea how far in front they are. Same with like the guys behind you. So you've got absolutely like no kind of lay of the land in terms of like a tactic. So um, for myself, and I think everyone would if they could, um, the tactic is always just to try and swim as close to the front as possible. I mean, um, you know, obviously you want to try and like conserve as much energy expenditure as you can, but you're not going to lose the race if you come out of the front of the swim and you can very much lose the race by coming out of the swim too far behind. So I always try to swim as best as possible. Sometimes that means coming out of the front. Sometimes that means some guys just blow you out of the water for any given reason, but I always try to swim as best as possible um and then understand that there are going to be guys who aren't great swimmers that will come through on the bike you know they're just you know amazing cyclists maybe they spend more time training on the bike or that's their tactic um so understanding that it's okay to get past sometimes on the bike because typically the guys who are the exceptional cyclists um they might fall apart on the run or, you know, they, they can put a good run together. So you're just hoping that, hey, you got far enough ahead in the swim. Um, in Xterra, I think the race is still very much decided on the bike. Um, it's, it's the longest time of any of the sports. You swim for, you know, the elites will come out 18, 19 minutes in the swim. Uh, and the run will be somewhere in the, you know, 30, high 30s to 45 minutes but the bike will make up about an hour to an, to an hour 20. Um, so it's the biggest chunk of time. So it's definitely the, where, where I think the race gets mostly decided um, in terms of where you're going to finish in the race. So like the, the top five guys off the bike will most likely be the top five guys at the finish, but the run will decide that order. So, you know, <laughs> typically it sort of goes like that. So it's just, yeah, you definitely have to run your own race, um, but also understand that like the dynamic of the groups plays a, a huge part in it. Um, yeah, I mean sometimes you can. It would, it would the the race results would be different if it was a straight out time trial as in the group. There's a lot of race craft in the sport that you have to sort of understand. So yeah, by all means, you are essentially running your own race. Um, but you have to be really aware of who's strong, where and there so that you can maximize that for your own benefit. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I was reading an article about you. I believe it was from maybe 2017 or 18. I think they were asking you a bit about training and you had mentioned that you do a lot of kind of volume, obviously, but uh, you also do a lot of high intensity type workouts. Is that Part, is that kind of standard protocol for Xterra or is that something that you do because you know this is going to be an event where you might be sitting and waiting and then punching an attack or something like that at a certain point. So you're going to be kind of going back and forth between kind of high end endurance to maybe even like uh, a high intensity interval just to make a move or to respond to a move. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, a bit of both, really. Well, I mean, my coach kind of literally wrote the book on high-intensity interval training. So high-intensity <laughs> interval always been a big part of my program um, in different ways as well. I think also he, he had a really good understanding of me being a young athlete as well. And sometimes that volume was hard to come by. You know, for myself, I would I would start falling apart if I did consistent blocks anything longer than 22 hours a week just 
my body being young and at the time. So, so high intensity was always a big part of that to try and bring some, some greater, you know, stress load up. So, um, yeah, typically most, most of my swims, I always swim in a squad, which would be four sessions a week. And that's always going to have a good mix of intensity because naturally you've got some squad swimmers who are sprinters, some who are distance athletes. So you're going to have a good mix naturally at swimming between like volume and intensity, which is really important. Um, we were really fortunate in the squad that I swim with to have some great sprinters and distance athletes. So you could kind of, you know, learn some good sprinting techniques and skills, which was particularly helpful at the start of races or when you had to respond to different speed. But I guess when you break it down into the bike and run, where you've got so structured high intensity interval training, the run, I wouldn't necessarily say there are periods where of sort of like high attack and slow down. Like it's, it's not a very cat and mouse thing. Like honestly, everyone's just got to the point where like, right, mate, I'm just running as fast as I can to the finish line sort of thing. And it's generally a more consistent pace. Obviously the hills, you know, will play a, you know, a role in that. But you're kind of just running at like your maximum sustained effort level um, for the run. But the bike, there's definitely periods of higher versus low intensity. Um, and I think that sort of falls into the fact that you spend some time in groups. The trails kind of dictate what you can and can't do. So yeah, for myself, I would spend a lot of time doing uh, like longer you know, seven to 10 to 20 minute sort of strength endurance um, efforts and or, or, and some threshold work at that, at that as well. So say maybe like four by 10 minutes at threshold and in like a um, over geared state as well. So low cadence, high, high power um, and then completely switch that up with some, you know, just 30 by 30, um, really high intensity, just kind of everything you have style intervals which just kind of made that like if someone was going to put an attack up a steep climb you'd kind of train for that response but also understanding that there are periods in this race where you're climbing for 20 minutes on the bike at your maximum sustained output so kind of training for that side of it as well so yeah you're kind of hedging your bets and then you vary that based on the courses that you know you're preparing for so the preparation for Xterra Rotorua, which was a very flat course in comparison to Xterra Hawaii, is a completely different style of build. Um, you know, Xterra Hawaii, you're probably doing some more shorter, sharp intervals because that's sort of how those, you know, that course is. It's, it can be quite pinchy and steep. Um, whereas Rotorua, you're probably trying to just spend more time in like a longer tempo style state, I guess. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of how that breakdown happens. It, it naturally happens in the swimming. The running, you do the high intensity to just try to become a better, more rounded athlete. I don't think that necessarily corresponds to, you know, like race-specific efforts that you're going to require. But the bike intervals, you're very much dialing into what's going to be race-specific. All right, folks, Optimal Carnivore reached out to support the show and let you know about a product they are very excited about. Optimal Carnivore recognized that organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, but can often be difficult to prepare conveniently and hard to get when eating out or traveling. For this reason, Optimal Carnivore has created grass-fed organ complex and bone marrow complex. They do this by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-dry the organs, and encapsulate them into a convenient bovine gelatin capsule. 
They chose New Zealand because it is a pure source, a pristine land with rich soil, lush greenery, and one of the cleanest environments on earth. The products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. The grass-fed organ complex is a unique blend of nine different organs, a powerful combination including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and intestines. The bone marrow complex contains the same components as a home-cooked bone broth, perfect for people who are traveling or who do not have the time to make bone broth. All the nutrients and substances that your body uses to build, repair, and maintain your bones, teeth, and connective tissues. In an effort to add even more to these benefits, Optimal Carnivore plants one tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So go visit www.amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Links and the promo code can be found in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. It's always interesting we start getting into the specific workouts and then taking it another level and designing it for the course itself too. Because I think a lot of times when people, they look at a sport and they're like, okay, I can kind of wrap my head around maybe what you would do to prepare for something like this. But then if you look at it even deeper, and I'm guessing there's, I mean, certainly if you're going to be doing any kind of standard triathlon as well as Xterra, you're going to get a very wide range of different kind of courses. But even within Xterra, it's like you said, you probably have flatter, more runnable like type routes versus real mountainous ones. And you got to train differently for those. It's just that it's a different, what I say is a bit different mechanic for running for, for biking. Maybe, maybe it's a similar mechanic. I don't know. You could tell me that, I guess, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when you, when you start getting to that real fine point of, you know, how, how badly do I want to like nail this particular race and if you really want to nail it, you almost got to try to train for the course too, not just the intensity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we can, well, it's, it's kind of just common sense really. You can put like the, the world's best 10K track athlete and send them out on a gnarly 10K trail run, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. you know, like, they're not going to handle it. It's, it's just not, not even the same muscle grow. It kind of is, but kind of isn't. You know, completely different mechanics. And while biking, it's still, you know, the, the motion's still exactly the same. The, it was very much different output so it suits different athletes differently your training very much has to adapt to it i think the the best say specific build i, I did was for um the itu the cross tri world champs in penticton um you know when they had really good in-depth files beforehand of elevations they had like a a course ride through with someone with a gopro that they sent out months in advance that everyone could kind of look at um, you know, my coach and I were really dialed in specifically for that course. Like we knew exactly what the effort was going to be. And I can still remember it in my head, like to this day, you know, you just spend so much time intently preparing for that course. And it, it makes a huge difference. It's probably the best race I've ever had. Um, you know, just, and I think a huge part of that was just preparing for that course. And also as an athlete, knowing what you were going to, you know, be challenged with when you got there. So it wasn't, it wasn't like sometimes you turn up to a race. Um, like I love racing in Asia, but sometimes you turn up to a race in Asia and you're not actually even sure where the course is and you go out riding three days beforehand and you're still not really sure where the course is. So it's um, <laughs> completely different. So yeah, I think like I, I kind of like 
the, the spontaneous part of me loves like turning up and not knowing what it's going to be. But from a performance point of view, you can really tune your training and it's really important to tune your training like to the course if you have the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. You can, you can tell when you show up to a course that you weren't, weren't ready for. And it just, it's the way I always described it is like, I could be really fit. And if I show up to a course that I'm not ready for, um, from a terrain standpoint, you just feel like you can't quite nail it. Like you can't quite make that, that puzzle piece fit perfectly. So you can have a really good day with your fitness, but you just, you walk away thinking like you left a little something on the table. If you don't kind of train those specific groups and that sort of stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There's definitely race specific responses. And I mean, like, yeah, blues and prof, they'll tell you every day of the week that, you know, specificity is everything, particularly closer to the event. It's, it's so important. So yeah, you can always get more out of it. If you, if you know what you're getting ready for. Um, I guess sometimes it can be a blessing. Sometimes it can be a curse. I mean, I always hate knowing what the course is for exterior worlds just because I know that it's going to be brutal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is handy. I, I mean, if you didn't know what that was going to be and you couldn't tune yourself for that at all, I mean, you'd have a hell of a day. But um, yeah, that's a, sometimes it's a bit daunting knowing what exactly you're going into. But yeah, it definitely does help from a performance point of view. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier on in the, in the interview that uh, you do some like meditation or visualization type stuff. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because I think one of the things that I've learned that I feel has made a big difference uh, more recently, I've been doing ultra marathons for almost 10 years or actually almost exactly 10 years now. So like I always love when I'll have like a race or a year where I feel like, wow, I just learned something that I would have never expected would be this useful. And then you implement, you just kind of feel like you added another tool to the toolbox. And one of those things for me in the last couple of years was just rather than going out and doing like a race specific workout and have it just like, okay, I got to get this workout done and and really hone in on the, the physiological aspect of it. I added like a piece to that where I just like spend a little more time also focusing on visualizing what I would be doing in the event itself. And I think that works really well for hundred mile foot races because you're not going to run a hundred miles on any one shot in training. So you show up to a race and when you get to mile 70, you've got 30 miles that you haven't experienced since the last time you did a hundred miler. And that might've been a half a year plus ago. So yeah. for me, like I would do these like 30 ish mile long runs on the weekends, but instead of just going on and doing the long run, I would just envision what it was like to be at mile 70 at the start of that run. And I would just picture myself getting to 75, 80, 85 and so on. Do yeah. you do a lot of that when you're preparing for a, a championship course like that, where you're out there on your work on, you're thinking, okay, I'm at, you know, 10 K into the bike. This is what I got to do. Kind of a mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So particularly as I get closer to races that I, um, like I'm really intently driven on performing well at I'll spend a lot of time like in the lead up to you know at home obviously like you know trying to visualize that as much as possible and whether that's writing about it or just thinking about it um but then also yeah when you when I'm actually out on the workout it's gonna sound I'm gonna sound so weird here there's gonna be people who are gonna be like man this kid's off is nut but I um I quite often get to like different interval sessions and I will kind of race myself but as if I was like another person um you know and like sometimes I like I even get super carried away in it where I can't even like look over my shoulder a little bit and I kind of like I really just try to put myself in the position of there being someone else there 
um, you know, particularly for the really high intensity intervals. Like, you know, I, you know, if I'm trying to um, increase my pace based on like what the actual session should be, I more just try to pretend like that's one of my rivals who's had a surge of pace, you know, and I need to respond to that. So yeah, it's taking yourself out of the numbers so much. Like obviously, you know, that's a really important thing to do, but putting yourself more into the performance um, part of it, um, you know, in terms of like trying to just imagine there being people around you. Um, I always like to try to do a mountain bike race, not that long, you know, maybe like two or three weeks before like an important race. Um, obviously, like I love mountain biking, but it puts you back and there's not that many exteriors that you can get ready for. Um, I mean, like it's, it's a hard thing to do if you're going to try and be fit all year round to race all of the tours. Like you're just not naturally going to be able to perform at your best for all of them. So if I'm getting ready for a race that I've decided like, hey, this is a race that we really want to try and work towards, then I'll try and find like a smaller race or a mountain bike race you know, two to three weeks before that. And, you know, at that point in time, that's when you're really kind of visualizing yourself in the, I'm starting to visualize myself racing the exterior in the mountain bike race. So kind of pretending that the other guys in the mountain bike race are other rivals in the exterior and sort of going like that. And I think that really just helps me to get into that sort of mindset of understanding that like, hey, this is going to hurt. There are going to be other people here who are going to like dictate some of that hurt. Um, which is something that you don't get used to when you're just training on your own by the numbers. You know that like, I know that this power is going to hurt or like, I know that this heart rate is going to hurt, but you kind of take the whole human interference out of it. So I really try to put myself back into the human interference as much as possible um, before races. I'll kind of three weeks before a race as well, I stop training with headphones. Um, I think that's like, for me, um, like when you train with headphones and you can't hear yourself breathe, it's a really weird thing to take your headphones out and then do a high intensity session and realize you can hear yourself breathing. Like to me, that's just like that. But it sounds weird, but it's something that like like I don't perform well when I can hear myself breathe if I haven't, you know, <laughs> sort of got used to it again. You know, kind of like man, I'm breathing real heavy. I must be cooked. When you just in reality you just haven't heard it because you've had your headphones in for ages. So. I always try to just like get back to that and I'll start um, like for us what we, we shave our legs. Um, so I'll kind of like shave my legs more often. Like we do it for the sport, mate. It's not just like, um, uh, there's a little bit of science to it, but so I'll start shaving my legs as I get closer. I'll start um, maybe doing some sessions without socks. Kind of I'll start like just doing little different things that all go into the race to try to make it more specific. And you're just, as you're sort of adding one of those new kind of race stresses, you're kind of visualizing how that goes. And that's, um, if it comes down to putting on your wetsuit before a race, like for me, that's the weirdest part of the event is getting ready when you're putting on your wetsuit. So if I'm doing my open water swims, getting closer to an event, I really try to put myself in the mindset and I'll start thinking about like, what are my race goals? Because that's what I'll be doing on the race day. So yeah, just kind of each time you add a new race day stress, try to put yourself in that situation. And then I try to pull myself out of it pretty quickly as well on the other end because it's so mentally draining getting ready for a big race. There's so much to think about. If you're thinking about it all the time, I think it can get really draining. So I'll put myself in that situation, you know, and just be really intense, like intently driven and just like totally present in that different stress and situation 
And then I'll pull myself out of it as soon as I can as well so that I kind of get back to being like a more relaxed state of flow. Um, and that really helps. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, I love to hear that. I think that's cool that you put that much kind of both mental and physical energy into kind of the preparation process. And it, it just goes to show you, I think like when if you take anything seriously, you know, n- nothing's as, as simple. There's certainly like, there's certainly like kind of the basics or the fundamentals, I think that can get you a long ways, but eventually I think you have to start really dialing in some of those, those finer points, like you mentioned. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, like it really helps for me when you're overseas because it's easy to get it out of it at the other end as well. Like, you know, I mean, obviously like, you know, more than me, what, how mentally engaged you have to be on a good performance. But like, it's really important to try to step out of that as much as well. So that, Mm-hmm. A, when you're spending that time being, you know, like really present in what your performance is going to be, you've got more energy to put towards that. But also understanding that like you're not going to perform well at the race if you're not healthy and to be healthy, you need to be able to step away from that. So like mm-hmm. for myself, I find it like much easier to do overseas than I do in New Zealand. Like I think I've been, I've been sick the last four years in a row at Exterra Rotorua, which is my home race. Um, and you know, I, I honestly think it's a mental thing because I find it so hard to step away from the race because you, like you're putting everything you have into honing your performance, but you can't step away from it because you just bump into people like at the supermarket or the streets and they're like, Oh, you know, like, how's your race prep going? How's this going? And it just straight away puts you back into that like mental drain mode of like, okay, I'm, I'm in race switched on mode again. And so it just gets really mentally draining um and yeah i've been sick the last four years in a row there and i i honestly think that's that's probably why and i i haven't figured out yet how to step away from that um whereas i find it really easy to do overseas in places like america or or asia or something because you can just go and do something touristy or you can just go and hang out in your room and do something whereas like when you're at home like everyone's obviously just trying to be supportive but it just you know, it's, it's really hard to escape what you need to escape at the time. Yeah. It's almost like it's too familiar. And you know, the way I always describe it for, for what I've done the last few years with some of these short loop track uh, runs is you know, also when I start getting into kind of like the focal point where I'm like six weeks out from taper, I'll start doing my long runs and stuff on a 400 meter track. If that's where the race is going to be. And you know, you, you load up a 32 mile track road <laughs> onto Strava <laughs> People are just like, well, how do you get through that mentally? How do you do it? And it's like, it's one of those things. I think there is a balance to it because obviously I want to be on the track enough so that I can dial in the mechanics that are going to be turning every hundred meters and, you know, running on a flat, hard surface and that sort of stuff so that my body's ready for that type of an experience. And then also getting used to kind of the mental aspect of being in that same little tight environment the entire day. Uh, but you can overdo that in training too. I think like if I went out and did every one of my miles for the last six weeks before tapering, then, you know, I'd probably show up to that race thinking, gosh, another track loop, <laughs> you know, and I'd burn myself out and I wouldn't want, I wouldn't even want to be there. So I think you can kind of like, you can overdo that or make it, make an environment almost too familiar to the degree yeah. where it almost, I don't know if it put, maybe from the mental side, it puts a little more pressure on you. Cause you feel like this is, this is my turf or this is like an environment I'm fine tuned. I've got zero excuses and there's no way I can make a mistake. And you almost overthink it versus being in an environment that is slightly newer, a little different. And all of a sudden, like you have, you, you, you give yourself a little bit of that, 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 that leash, I guess, to, 
you know, have those natural mistakes that are happening in longer races, almost no matter what you have to be ready to respond to them. And, you know, minimizing the negative aspect of a mistake is what's going to create a really good day versus trying to eliminate all of them altogether in a lot of cases. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. When you're at home, like when I race in Rotorua, a mistake frustrates me way more than if I make a mistake somewhere else, you just, and that's, yeah, that's a, it's part of, I don't know, maybe it's a young thing or what or not, but yeah, it's definitely something that I need to figure out, um, you know, like in myself, how to kind of handle the, having the familiar aspects around. Like, I don't, I have no idea how you managed to run that like hundred mile treadmill in your house because like <laughs> me, in the lead up to that, I would walk past that room every time and then put myself in a situation of like, oh, okay, like what am I doing to get ready for this? <laughs> instead of like being able to kind of have like being able to at all break away from that so yeah i think like honestly i find it hard enough i'm getting the people in the supermarket and rotorua when i'm getting ready for exterior rotorua let alone walking past like you know my you know walking past your office and seeing the treadmill and be like all right <laughs> the smart, here we go. So, <laughs> yeah. my, my secret is the real reason nicole and i came up to colorado so i wouldn't have to see that treadmill for a while yeah put it on ebay or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i haven't done a long effort on it yet i've done some short fast stuff on it though i, I feel like my my uh, re-entry to treadmill running will be doing short, fast stuff first, which, which is fine right now. It's so hot in Phoenix that if I'm going to do something really hard, sometimes the treadmill is a little bit of a better option if I can cool it down just a bit. But uh, yeah, you know, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about too a bit is just like, what is like kind of your nutrition approach and what works for you? I, I know you mentioned that you, you follow a high fat, low carb diet. And I'm guessing that that was uh Partly, uh, you got introduced to that from uh, Dr. Plews and, uh, and Larson, Dr. Larson. So um, do you want to share with us a little bit just about kind of how you got introduced to that? Because I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing x probably has its roots in moderate to high carbohydrate fueling and nutrition. So sometimes it's interesting to hear how people find an alternative way, way of fueling. Yeah, yeah, no, x definitely has its roots in a high carb nutrition space. I mean, like the the night before exterior world champs they have the pasta party and the race sponsors gatorade and that's very much like a you know like like pretty much every other sport in the world that you know is in that sort of sector two and a half hour length like it's very much high carb dominated by people so for how i got into low carb high fat i was 16 at the time 16 um and that was when i started working with prof um yeah professor lawson properly um and he we you know called up and he basically just said like oh hey mate like you know there's going to be all these things that are kind of going to like introduce to you over a period of time and the first one of those is going to be diet um at that time i wasn't eating badly like by all means i was eating like good quality food and you know lots of it but it was you know naturally when everyone anytime someone says they're on a balanced diet, like it's a high carb diet, like that's just naturally how food works. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was on this, what I considered a balanced good diet at the time, but it was, you know, very much high carb. So the transition for that was, um, just starting to try to, like, I always love bacon and eggs. I have no problem with eating bacon and eggs, but so we would eat, um, you know, we'd just take away any of like the bread or the carb from that. I would literally just have like the eggs and the bacon and then eventually take away any sort of sauce or, you know, that sort of thing. And I just 
for me, that kind of became my thing. I, I actually totally over ate bacon and eggs, and there's a whole lot of health reasons why you shouldn't eat bacon and eggs every day. But for <laughs> me, that was just what I did when I was starting. You know, it was kind of like the easiest thing, and probably ate bacon and eggs every day for, for three months. But um, <laughs> so I eventually got the hang of, of the good fat sort of thing with the, you know, like the abos and the, and, you know, nuts. We sort of started to introduce that properly. But being 16 as well, is that there also wasn't a lot slash any data on young athletes um, and a low carb, high fat diet. So that was obviously like a consideration as well. So all my diet became like low carb, high fat. It was, you know, I, it wasn't real, like, you know, it was, I wasn't down into that. Um, it, it was definitely not sort of that ketosis state um you know it was very much like 130 150 grams of carb per day um that i would be taking on and then sometimes as well if i if i just kind of felt like i needed it i would maybe have like just some oats um you know before or after a session and i was i followed it like strictly but also with the understanding that you know it wasn't going to be the end of the world to kind of have some carbs and you know it became um i think the diet made a probably like it, it coincided with me taking my training load more seriously um as well but i know there's been times where like my diet has been off and my training's been good and my performance has really fallen away so i think like outside of the training then the diet's definitely like they've been the second most important thing for me um or probably equally as important so yeah low carb for me meant somewhere around 150 grams a day but it also then became more of like a periodized carb approach um, because my sport is two and a half hours long and there's some periods of exceptionally high, um, high intensity intervals. Um, we would quite often periodize some carb in around my sort of key sessions. So if I had like a, I had this one key bike session every week, you know, which is 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. And we would quite often add some carb into that um you know i would most likely just have a red bull before or during sort of thing um because that's something that i would do in the race um so that was kind of how that came yeah. about and then with the running um i would normally do the same thing for my eight by one k session um so it became sort of like a, a low carb but then periodized as well around you know like i didn't only live on red bull when i had carb you know i was, I was sometimes a little bit more um um neutral so just like some oats or um yeah whatever i kind of felt like at the time that sort of went with that but yeah understanding that low carb as a young athlete actually really really helped me um particularly i think lots of young athletes can struggle with the lean sort of thing they can be like skinny or bulky or but it was quite hard to be kind of lean and in my sport being tall like I need to try and put on some like muscle mass and then to do that, I would also put on a lot of weight, which would be, you know, really detrimental to my performance being that we, you know, cover a lot of elevation. Um, and so mm. yeah, like I've really helped me from like a lean perspective just to be, um, you know, I would have like for my height of around six foot two, I would have, you know, like a, a, a pretty good weight compared to other guys who are much smaller, you know, we'd have a, a relatively similar weight style. Um, and then I would just generally be more efficient at moving through the energy systems, 
particularly in a sport where you don't have ease of access to carbohydrate in the form of if you're doing like a road triathlon or um, other sports where you can kind of take a drink anytime you want or you can eat anytime you want, you don't have that luxury next year. You know, there's probably like three, four places on the bike course that it's like physically possible to take on board nutrition where it's not like too you know too technical um so i think that was that was really helpful for me as well understanding that like hey you know like i'm starting this race you know doing a swim bastard essentially you know i'd have have a small breakfast maybe um but you do the swim and you're like okay i'm not fighting to try to like get a, a gel down or like get some carb into me in the first you know part of the race whereas you see these guys who are in these you know, like they're really fun to get, like make sure they've got like the timing of these carbs perfectly because they're just burning through it and it's just not possible in Xterra. So, you know, for me, I didn't have to have a, like some guys have stopwatches on their bikes, you know, basically it goes like a beeps every 15 minutes and they have to try and take a gel. And you hear them beep and we're on like this downhill in the middle of nowhere and you talk to them after the race and the race hadn't gone to like, yeah, yeah, I missed up my, my nutrition timing really bad today. And I don't know if that's, actually really a thing but yeah you can tell they're definitely burning through the endogenous carb store way faster than i was um you know so like my timing became less important which was a huge advantage in xterra so if i could take on board like a little bit to hold those endogenous reserves um that was yeah a, a big advantage when when it really needed to be so yeah i think low carb helped me a lot and i you know absolutely like there hasn't been a whole lot of racing going on recently and i've kind of just been mucking around with like a few other things. Um, so obviously trying to live, you know, relatively low carb, but not in a, not in like a serious way that you do when you're training for a race. So, but yeah, somewhere, you know, when I, when I know I've got a race coming up and, and I'm getting ready for it, then yeah, it'll be somewhere around like 130 to 100, you know, 130, 150 grams a day and a little bit periodized around those key sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that, that sounds very close to kind of what I do from a macronutrient standpoint. And it's, it's interesting. And I, where, where I think a lot of people get confused is, you know, you have an off season, you have a preseason, you have a season, you have all these different times a year where you're doing different things and different intensities. And sometimes those intensities flex up, sometimes they don't. And it's like, what your body's going to require to execute those workouts are going to maybe be very different from one day to the next. So finding that timing, I think is the hardest part for people, but once they do, it's like super liberating because you start looking at, you look at carbohydrates as a tool, but a tool that you don't need to have as your foundation. And that's great for, that's what I love about it. It's like, I can get all the benefits from carbohydrate that I would have before when I was just churning through high amounts of them at basically any intensity yeah. yeah to to the point where now I can still get that pop from them but I don't have to be doing like two three times as many as I would have in the in the past and I think that's that's uh that's interesting and it's also you know I I did an interview with uh Dr. Jeff Volick years ago on a podcast called Endurance Plan we did like a three part series where we were yeah. just kind of talk, talking mm-hmm. a little bit about kind of what I did and Dr. Volick was kind of pitching in some of the science behind it and what he thought about what he'd seen in the research lab and all that stuff and And his message was, you know, 150 grams of carbohydrate for someone like you doing 20 to 25 hours of work per week, like hard physical work per week is like, you know, that's probably fairly close to someone having 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate a day that are going to the gym three days a week. And then, you know, know, working a typical nine to five job or something like that. So it's, 
there is like this context piece to that puzzle that I think trips a lot of people up sometimes. So, um, yeah. just like yeah. race course specificity is king, context is king when it comes to your nutrition as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh man, like you know, in that sort of last six weeks before an event, you know, it probably spends time being more like two to sometimes even two hundred and fifty grams a day on like a you know, if I've got like two high intensity sessions or something, you know, and I've got kind of like a little bit periodized for both of those sessions, then yeah, I think like, um, I'm not sure how you sit on like the actual counting perspective, but for me, I never actually count what I'm taking in beyond like, I did a little bit at the start. Um, but then once you kind of just learn what food groups and what works for you, you don't need to count. So like for myself anyway, you know, I definitely don't, um, you know, count sort of so religiously anymore, you know, it's sort of more just like, I know that like, you know, if I eat this, this is, this is a good thing to be eating. And then, you know, you kind of add in a little bit more of what you need based on the sort of work output you're, you're putting out and what you're sort of, you know, trying to train specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because like when you get into that world where you're in that peak training phase and you are flexing your carbs up a little bit higher than what you would be doing in the off season, you kind of end up in this position where it's almost like reverse of what like someone's going to kind of typically do where, you know, the average person is probably not giving a whole lot of thought to macronutrients and they're probably eating like, you know, 60% carb, 20% fat, 20% protein, somewhere around there. Um, and, you know, they think they just do that intuitively. They don't think too much about it. Yeah. And they look at what you're doing or what I'm doing. They think, man, that must be so tedious looking at that. It's like, no, you do it for like a few weeks and you find what foods you like within those categories. It kind of just falls into place. And you just kind of do it, you know, and it, it just, it just, it takes a little learning at first. Like you said, you need to do those block workouts, back to back hard days, or if you have a big training week. And the way I like to describe it is if, if I stayed like classic keto or even like zero carb, during a big training week, what would likely happen is I would have this kind of like downward staircase uh, kind of scenario with my muscle glycogen levels to the point where I might feel great for like three or four days, but then all of a sudden I might tank out. And, uh, but just putting in the right amount at the right times around the, the right workouts is you could kind of bypass that. And you, you kind of try to get the best of both worlds, I guess, is maybe the way to say it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like I was sort of four or five hour long rides fasted in those periods, you know, and so you've kind of, you know, for us, that's kind of like the longest we'll do in our, you know, in our sport, it's only two and a half hour long race. So, you know, for me to do four or five hours long ride fasted, and then, you know, it doesn't really matter that you're adding in some carb, whether that's like a, um, a Red Bull, I, I love Red Bull, um, for like a high intensity session, or if it's like, just maybe bring in some like S-fuels, like some race plus, like, earlier than say what would be like recommended but you're just periodizing that based on like what your diet is so yeah you obviously like you there's a learning process and like kind of learning that like based on the different you know sort of effects i'm trying to have like what am i going to do for that and once you've learned it once and maybe every now and then you kind of check in on it it's not super tedious um you know it's, it's actually really really achievable and super easy i think i actually probably think less about diet when I'm, you know, when I know that I'm on my low carb thing, cause it's not necessarily like how much food you like Paul would always tell me, prof would be like, Hey mate, like you don't ever want to be hungry. So, you know, like if that means like having some more eggs or having some more this or that, you know, like just grabbing another handful of nuts or something. Like I probably think less about nutrition when I know that I'm in those good phases of, you know, being on like, you know, my low carb, high fat diet. 
rather than when I'm kind of outside of that because I'm thinking like, oh, mate, like I probably shouldn't be eating that or oh, I probably should or shouldn't be eating that. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's a different mindset switch. It's kind of completely opposite to what most people are doing, but actually way easier once you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for guys like uh, Dr. Dan Plews and, and Dr. Larson for a lot of stuff that they've done. Cause I think like when I first started it, I, I didn't know who either of those guys were when I first started it, but I, I got introduced to them. I think when I read uh, Dr. Mark Bob's book um, at peak, he uh, did a really good job. I thought of kind of diving into where the sports science is historically kind of how it's kind of evolved over the last few decades. And then also kind of saying, here's some new stuff that's kind of coming out that, you know, we need more work in and we need more research, but it looks like it could be promising. And then especially some of the stuff that Professor Larson did with the, uh, the continuous glucose monitors with, I think he did hundred K athletes or something like that. Just yeah. fascinating to see like the difference even between like someone at the front of a field to the middle of the pack or like a pro versus kind of like a, a weekend warrior, so to speak, just like the way that like, you know, that's even a different context in terms of how you maybe want to fuel during an event like that, or how your, how your body's responding to your interface fueling strategies and all that stuff. And it, it's uh it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, oh man, it's so interesting. And like, yeah, I've obviously been super fortunate because in the time that I have taken sports seriously from being 16 years old through now, like, you know, I've had the guidance of, of prof, um, you know, you know, Paul, Paul Lawson, or as, you know, as people probably know him in books, you know, like, um, I just call him prof, but professor Paul Lawson, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then obviously blues as well. Um, so, you know, I've been really fortunate to have their guidance from the very start. So I kind of haven't had to like learn anything wrong and then unlearn it and then learn something different. Um, and then also I think what you really learn with those kind of guys who I consider like world-class leaders of their field globally you really notice that they're very fluid and they're like there's always new stuff happening or there's always new stuff to try whereas i think there's some of those guys who maybe i don't know if it's like rude to like tear people but those kind of like second tier kind of physiologists and stuff who get really stuck in what they're doing like i'm a nutritionist or i'm a physiologist like this is what you have to do this is what you have to do like i studied to do this and that you know like they're kind of not really that progressive Whereas I think with guys like Prof and Blues and, you know, those sort of guys, they're just really progressive. And I think that's why they, you know, stand out. I mean, super fortunate to, to work with them for as long as I've kind of known that low carb, high fat was even a thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, when, when you, you win Xterra world championships, we'll have to have all three of you come on the podcast and just give us a big rundown of everything you guys did from training to nutrition and, uh, share all yeah. your secrets yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the first the first secret that's probably not a great secret the best race i've ever had was at the itu cross tri world champs in penticton in canada and um that was like a really good race for me i think i, I like i won the overall amateurs by quite a long time and then would have been you know, like pretty competitive with the pros but um prof was with me for that trip and um so hey obviously we had everything like dialed and we prepared specifically for that but there was this damn ice cream shop, like honestly, right by where you started the, the swim. And we walked past it every single day. And, um, and they made these huge ice cream sundaes. 
And so like, I kind of managed to get 10 minutes away from Prof the day before the race. We'd always joked before, like, oh, okay, like after the race, we'll get them sort of thing. And it just became too much of a temptation for me. And honestly, the afternoon before the race, there I was lining up and getting my, I should have taken a photo of it, the world's biggest chocolate ice cream sundae. And um, I looked back and go like, oh man, like, sorry, I was totally an 18 year old kid. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the worst thing I could have done, but um, but I absolutely loved it as well. And it, you know, fortunately, it didn't have any bearing on the result. I think I was a happy athlete, a fast athlete, and I was uh, I was pretty happy. No doubt. Well, and I think you can do a lot of ice cream too. I think, especially the night before, I always find the night before a big effort, like I can get away with a decent amount of carbohydrate relative to what I normally do. Where I have to start being a little careful. I usually think is when I wake up the morning of where I don't necessarily want to have hardly any carbs before I get 30 or actually more like 45 to 60 minutes into the race. And then I can kind of start bringing those back a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, topping off your glycogen stores the day before and then having an overnight fast and not having a carb heavy breakfast, you're going to be in a good position if you've been training on a high fat, low carb diet to really still, you know, what I like to say is like, we're looking to shift your fat oxidation rate enough, not necessarily as far as it could possibly get because everything yeah. comes at a trade-off and a two and a half hour race is uh, a high oxygen race. So like there's going to be a, there's going to be some, some usage for a little bit of well-timed carbohydrate, I think in an effort like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like for myself, I'll have, you know, you obviously have your diet leading in as low carb, high fat with a bit of periodized. And then yeah, the night before I will typically have, you know, introduce, you know, quite a bit more carb and actually not really think about it. just kind of eat what I feel like eating. Obviously I'm not going like eating pasta and this, that and the other, you know, it's probably more like kumaras and then I might have like something for dessert just because I love dessert, got a real sweet tooth. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, like on the morning of you're obviously like, it would actually be quite interesting. Like the, I would have a way better HRV response every morning that I woke up for a race um you know and i think that sort of just adding a little bit extra of that carbohydrate the night before obviously sort of helped that um and then yeah you're not taking any carbohydrate in that morning other than you know whatever just kind of naturally occurring like my breakfast um but definitely not consciously until for me it would be yeah about half an hour into the race and then considering i would have done about like a 15 20 minute warm-up which actually has some high intensity periods in it you know, that becomes like, you know, pretty much 45 minutes of work time would be when I introduced my first sort of carbohydrate um, during the race period. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's always interesting to kind of hear the training process, the nutrition process, the mental process, which I think you've done a really good job of explaining kind of what you do with that. And that's always kind of cool to get into the psyche of someone like yourself, who's uh, competing at that type of a level at your, at your discipline. But I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Lewis, but it was, it was great to have you on here. Um, if you want to share with our listeners where they can find you, if you're active on a website, social media, and that sort of stuff, feel free to do that. And I'll also put show notes so they can link to it easily. Oh, yeah. Epic. No, no, I mean, oh, if you want to follow along the adventure, you can jump on the gram. I'm on the gram, Lewis Ryan. Or, um, yeah, I mean, i got a website and stuff as well, but yeah, it's not, to, not, not anything super exciting happening at the moment. No real racing, but yeah, fingers crossed they'll kind of, I don't know, if you do watch this and bump into me somewhere, give me a, give me a rating out of 10, hey, let me know how it went. It was actually my, uh, it's my second or my third podcast appearance ever, so I'm pretty fresh in the game. So, um, oh, wow. I would, be, 
I would have expected you've been on dozens at this point. You know, you did, a, did an awesome job. I look forward to getting this one out to the listeners and uh, we'll have to have you back on after some racing or something like that. You can give us a kind of a, a blow by blow uh, kind of experience of what it's like to, to do an Xterra race when it's fresh in your mind. Um, also, I, I can't forget to, uh, to thank you for all the graphics you've made <laughs> for the treadmill event. <laughs> Uh, folks, if, for those of you listening that tuned in for my treadmill event, they had a, a way better production value than I would have ever been able to do by myself, thanks to a lot of people. But Lewis was one of the guys behind the scenes who was putting together a lot of the graphics that would pop up throughout the course of the day, um, basically fine-tuning a lot of that stuff. And some, some of that stuff was getting changed like pretty regularly, so it wasn't probably easy. <laughs> I, I just remember we'd get like an email from – one of the sponsors or, or from whoever's like, Oh, can we change this? Or can we do just this? I'm just thinking, Oh man, Lewis is going to have to like start his work day over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a funny one. Cause that was the time zone comparison to New Zealand is 2am that you started, I think, or like 2am or 3am. But obviously I'd been up the whole day getting ready for it. And then, um, I also wanted to make sure with Leighton, um, oh, the owner of Estfields, but everyone out there, Leighton, um, we were kind of just making sure that everything was going to happen as smoothly as possible leading into it. And then obviously I had to stay up for the full 12 hours of the event, but we'd had a really big night before trying to change a whole bunch of last second graphics and this, that, and the other. So I think I ended up just being, it was like 38 hours straight that I was awake for the, uh, for the treadmill attempt. So yeah, I think by part of it, I was thinking, shit, I should have just done the 12 hours on the treadmill, at least got off the <laughs> at least you get to get up and have a sleep at the end of it. <laughs> I was just going to say, if, if, one of our, uh, if our, one of our more detailed listeners jumps into your training, wherever that's, that's uh, stored and sees a dip in performance in the middle of May, will know it was due to sleep deprivation and they can blame me for that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. That wasn't a low carb day. That was, uh, I think that was six weeks to get me through that stuff. The low sleep diet is not recommended in any capacity. Uh, <laughs> awesome, Lewis. Well, thanks again for coming on and uh, uh, I'll look forward to getting this one up and I'll let you know when, when it goes live. Yeah, thanks, Hapes, man. Always a, always a treat. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.